I would ask each new Christian to consider wisely collecting a group of people who can give you good information and then gather all the information before you make a, make a decision or a choice. Talk to God about it and then make the wise choice. You've made the first one to become a Christian. I was blessed from coming from a family who were very strong in their Christianity and they passed that on to me and I can't think of anything that's more wonderful to pass on to your family than the love of God. Surround yourself with other Christians and always stay close to God and He'll stay close to you. In Luke the sixth chapter, Jesus is talking to some of His followers and He says to them, Why do you call me Lord when you don't do what I tell you to do? My advice is to really learn to know Jesus Christ and know what His priorities are, to submit to Him daily and walk in His footsteps. The Bible is filled with good advice to the Christian or his new or old. They're from the Mac of the Old Testament prophet. Here comes the question, what does God require of thee, O man, but to do justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with his God? In the New Testament, Paul speaking to young Timothy, he said, flee worldly lusts that war against the soul. Of course, the teachings of Jesus. He says, you bear much fruit if you're going to be my disciple. You are very special to God. And in that, just remember your commitment to Him and stay excited about God and about His Word and about uh, being His servant. Reporters were interviewing a 104-year-old woman on her birthday. And she was asked, what's the best thing about being 104 years old? And she replied, no peer pressure. (laughs) Now that was sent to me along with other jokes about older people. Uh, Let me share two more with you. I've sure gotten old. I've had two bypass surgeries, a hip replacement, new knees, fought prostate cancer and diabetes. I'm half blind. I can't hear anything quieter than a jet engine. And I take 40 different medications that make me dizzy, winded, and subject to blackouts. I have bouts with dementia, poor circulation, and can hardly feel my hands and feet anymore. I can't remember if I'm 85 or 92. But thank God, I still have my driver's license. I think I was behind that guy on the way to church today. And one more. I feel like my body has gotten totally out of shape, so I got my doctor's permission to join a fitness club and start exercising. I decided to take an aerobics class for seniors. I bent, twisted, gyrated, jumped up and down, and perspired for an hour. But by the time I got my leotards on, the class was over. 
Now, the question must be asked, why did someone send me a list of jokes about old people? And I think I know the answer. And that is, a lot of people think I'm old. Now, I don't feel old. I don't think I'm very old. And yet, when I was in high school and in college, I thought people my age were old. And I must be getting old because several times in the last few years, I have had reunions with people that knew me a long time ago. And they all said the same thing. They said, Rick, you're looking good. You see, there are four stages in life. There is childhood, there is adolescence, there is adulthood, and there's, you're looking good. Because someone that hasn't seen you for a long time, when they say, you're looking good, what they really mean is, wow, are you still alive? And so I know that I'm getting old, but I don't mind because I love older Christians. And one of the things I love most about older Christians is that they can laugh at themselves a lot easier than younger people can. And one reason is because life and experience has taught them what really matters and what doesn't matter so much. That's why they're most qualified to teach world class. And you have to pass world class if you want to do the world some good. That's the message of the morning. It comes from 1 John chapter 2 as we continue to work through this powerful letter. Grab a pew Bible if you don't have one and turn to page 680. We're going to read two paragraphs that at first don't seem that connected to each other, but I think you'll see that they are. So starting in verse 12, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. There's only one command in that whole long text, and it was in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, what does John mean by the world? Because that word is used several ways in the Bible. It's used to talk about creation. And it's okay to love creation because God does. God made it. God thinks it's good. God plans to restore it. So that's not what he means. And then sometimes the word world is used to talk about humanity and people. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And it's okay to love people. But sometimes the word world in the Bible is used to talk about a Satan-inspired world view. That sets itself against God, either by ignoring Him 
or brazenly challenging Him. It's a worldview that has permeated politics and the economy and education. It's a system of thinking that leaves God out. That's what John means. It's what he says in 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are children of God and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. It's what Jesus meant twice when he talked about the devil and called him the prince of this world. It's this system against God that Jesus referred to in John 15 when he said, If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. And that is why the world hates you. Now later, Jesus prayed, Lord, don't take my disciples out of the world. We are to be light and salt. We're to be in the world. But the question is, how can we live in the world without the world living in us? And that's why we need to go to world class. But many Christians fail. And there are two reasons why. And John gives us those warnings. The first one is the possibility of misplaced affections. He gives you two reasons not to love the world. And the first reason is because love of the world and love of the Father is not both and. It's either or. In other words, he says you can't love the world and love God like a lot of people try to do. Jesus said the same thing. No man can serve two masters. He didn't say you should not serve two masters. He said you cannot do it. And the reason you cannot do it is because God won't let you do it. God will not receive your worship and your allegiance if he's in second place or even if he's tied for first because he would have to lie about who he really is to receive it. He won't do it. I love the way verse 15 is translated from the message. He says, love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. Now, it's interesting how churches have typically defined worldliness. They pick something they're against. When it was my grandfather's generation, they picked playing cards. And for my father's generation, it was going to movies. And when I was in high school, it was going to the prom. And this is proof that you're worldly. I think some of our choices have been, frankly, kind of silly. Now, some choices aren't so silly. You know, internet pornography and drug addiction and greediness is all signs of worldliness. But notice what we typically do. We pick whatever we think is the deep, dark, ugly sin of the day, and we call that worldliness. In other words, that's what you're not to do because that's evil and wicked. I don't think that's all John had in mind. When he talks about your wants and your desires and your lust and your being proud of something you have or something you've done, I think what John is saying is that any craving that has given affection that should go to God to something else is worldliness. In other words, worldliness can be a good thing in the wrong place. If you're more obsessed about your job than you are about God, that's worldly. If you think more about your passion, whether it's golf or bowling or your cabin on the lake, than you think about God, it's worldly. 
Jesus even said, you can put your family in the place God belongs, and it's worldly. Love of anything that distances you from God is worldly. It's fatal. And it's also futile. Which is the second reason John says not to love the world. He said in verse 17, the world and its desires pass away. The world is a corpse. It just hasn't been buried yet. We're passing through what is passing away. And someday we're going to stand before a holy God. And everything the world is proud of, all the material possessions, all the educational and entertainment pedigrees and attainments, all of it is going to be burned up. And so the question is, why do we, who are heirs of the eternal, get so focused on the transient? Why do we reflect instead of reject what the world values so much at the cost of our witness? Let me illustrate. What do I hold in my hand? Quarters, right. Wrong. This is a quarter. This is a Susan B. Anthony dollar. You don't find many of these. I had to go to the bank to get this one. The government had what they thought was a wonderful idea. We'll make a dollar in a coin. But the idea never caught on. Why? Because they made the dollar look so much like the quarter that people couldn't tell the difference. And when a Christian who is of such great value to God looks so much like the world that the world can't tell the difference, then we cheapen our testimony. We're no longer salt and light. Why do so many fail world class? Why do we misplace our affections? Well, John would say another possibility would be arrested development. Now, we all agree that a new birth is wonderful. But we also agree permanent infancy is terrible. When we hear of a baby born that will never develop, never grow, never mature, we all agree that's a tragedy. John would say the presence of worldliness in the church is because of the absence of spiritual maturity. And that's what he's addressing when he talks about children and young men and fathers. He's talking about spiritual maturity, not chronological maturity. Now, they should go together. The older you are in Christ, the more mature you should be. And that's often how it works, but not always. We all know young people who are very spiritually mature. And we all know some older Christians who are childish in their attitudes and behaviors. But Satan 
wanting us to misplace our affections, knows that he must stunt our spiritual growth. And sadly, in a lot of churches, this is just tolerated. We just passively accept continued spiritual infancy. It should not be this way. John says there should be the discernible fruit of an increasingly victorious life as you more readily conquer the evil one as you grow up in Christ following him. And I believe that is one of the blessings of having a church full of older Christians who really know the Lord. I don't want to go to a church where everybody is under 30. I know there would be a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of vigor. But we need to hear the testimonies of those who have spent their lives following hard after God. I like the word of the psalmist in chapter 71. Now that I am old and gray, do not abandon me, O God. Let me proclaim your power to this new generation. Your mighty miracles to all who come after me. You see, one thing you learn in world class is that a Christian never finishes growing. You never reach a place in your life where you say, Well, you know, I'm just as much like Christ as a person could possibly be. We're always growing. We're always developing. We're always following hard after Jesus. And so listen to John give us some wisdom because even in this room right now we got some new christians we got some growing christians we got some mature christians and if you're a new christian what john says to you is remember god's grace he says i write to you dear children because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name the first thing a new christian should be grounded in is his status as a forgiven child due to God's grace expressed through the atoning work of Christ. That's the first thing. You have got to learn that you're saved, that you're forgiven, and you've got to learn why you're saved and forgiven. Not because of what you've done, but because you've trusted in what Christ has done for you. You are saved by grace through faith. This is the first lesson in world class. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I passed on to you what was most important. Now all doctrine's important, but some is more important than others. And this is most. That Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day as the scriptures said. Now, if a new Christian is not grounded in this most important doctrine of salvation by the grace of God, they will be susceptible to Satan's accusations and their growth will be stunted. And this is why churches steeped in legalism are so full of immature people who complain and whine and get so bent out of shape about things that seem so irrelevant because they still think they are saved based on what they do and how they do it instead of what God has done and that is why the first thing a new Christian has got to learn is the grace of God you hold your ground by holding on to the cross and Jesus said that's what cast Satan down Paul says That's what overcame the enemy. 
the cross and the grace of God. Look at John chapter 12. Now, Jesus says, the time of judgment for the world has come when the prince of this world will be cast out. And when I'm lifted up on the cross, I'll draw everyone to myself. In the Revelation, John says, chapter 12, For the accuser has been thrown down to earth, the one who accused our brothers and sisters before our God day and night, and they have defeated him because of the blood of the Lamb. I've told the story before of Napoleon and his generals around a table and there was a map. And he put his finger on a red dot and said, if it wasn't for that red dot, I could have conquered the world. And that red spot was Great Britain. Imagine the devil and all his demons around the map. And he curses and he fumes and he points to a red spot. And he said, if it wasn't for that red spot, I could have owned the world. And that red spot is Calvary. You see, the devil cannot stand the sight of blood. And so listen, I don't care if you've been a Christian for six months or 66 years. Don't you ever take forgiveness for granted. You are saved by grace. And a Christian never gets too old or too mature that they shouldn't have tears in their eyes. When they sing amazing grace. This will always be the first and most important lesson in world class. You new Christians, remember God's grace. And then you growing Christians. John's word to you is to retain God's word. I remember reading an article about an army instructor who years ago was sent two different times to Fort Seal in Oklahoma. He was an artillery trainer. And he said when he went the first time in the late 50s, his students wouldn't even stay awake in class. They were so bored. But they sent him back in the mid-60s to teach the same class. He said this time his students never fell asleep. They took extensive notes. You know why they cared so much? Because in six weeks they were going to be in Vietnam Facing the enemy. And that's why growing Christians can't get enough of this manual. Because they know the battle is on. And the enemy, though vanquished, is not yet vanished. And so he says, I write to you, young men, because you're strong. And the word of God lives in you. And you have overcome the evil one. There is going to be in the life of a growing Christian. Evidences of victory. In areas of your life where the enemy used to always win. Because you're becoming strong in the Lord. You see, like Jesus in the wilderness. You have learned to meet the devil and his lies With the word of truth. The Bible says Ephesians 6. You take the sword of the spirit. Which is the word of God. And that Greek word that he uses there. Rhema. Means that specific word from the scripture. That confronts the lie of the enemy. Jesus did it three times. He pulled right out of the book of Deuteronomy. Three different passages. That were directly rebuking the lie of the enemy. And so when a young man, when a growing Christian stores into their heart the Word of God, 
the Holy Spirit is given ammunition. And in the conflict, when the battle is hot and heated, the Holy Spirit is going to bring to mind that truth that confronts the enemy and makes him flee. You say, can I make the devil flee? Absolutely. The Bible says, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. How can you make the devil flee? Invite him to a Bible study. Because he can't stand the blood, he can't stand the sight of blood, and he can't bear the word of truth. And that's why Paul says, Colossians 3, you let the words of Christ and all their richness live in your hearts and make you wise. Or as Charles Spurgeon put it, a Bible falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. And so you grow in Christians. You, you steep yourself in the study of the Word of God. And the mature Christians among us, John's word to you is to recall God's goodness. Two different times he says the exact same things to the fathers. I write to you because you have known Him who is from the beginning. And John is referring to those who have long experienced the faithfulness of God. And they've come to trust His unfailing kindness, even when they don't understand everything that He is up to. See, they don't just know about God anymore. They know God. Because they've been walking with Him for a long time. And the inevitable result of a long walk with God is resemblance. You know those couples that have been married 40 or 50 or 60 years, how they start to say the same things, tell the same stories, talk alike and act alike. And I'm not making this up. My great-grandparents, Leff and Lucy Hill, celebrated over 70 years of marriage, and they started to look alike. If you took her hair and put it on his head, you'd think it was the same person. And that's what happens when people pursue Christ long and hard. His character starts to become their character. Because like Christ, they start to care more about God's glory than their own. And that's why the world can't tempt them anymore. We're all praying for Mike and Sharon Washburn that we love deeply. Sharon got a bad report Monday. Her cancer is very aggressive. And she's in for a very difficult fight. And on her blog, that Monday when she got back from the doctor, she wrote this. I have her permission to read it. So here we go. Are you up for a fight? There's one ahead. I'm not talking about a fight against God because He's on our side. I'm talking about a fight against a disease that's invaded my earthly body. We need your prayers and are counting on God's grace to get us through the journey before us. Let me be clear. Mike and I love our Lord. We do not waver on living our lives for Him. Our very existence is from Him 
and for Him. He will see us through. No matter the outcome, we are His and we praise Him. Please, please praise Him with us. There are so many things we don't know. But we do know we are His and loved by Him and will live with Him forever because of His saving grace toward us. We don't want anyone to mistake this disease for a lack of love from our Lord. You can't write like that unless you've spent a lot of time getting to know God. I'm reminded of the words of the psalmist in chapter 116. How can I repay the Lord for all His goodness to me? These are the words of those who have passed world class. And here's the irony or the paradox. It's what Jesus said and it's what John affirms. The way to love the world is to love God more. See, the answer is never seclusion. The way to deal with the world is not to get ourselves off in our own little Christian huddles and just avoid contact with the world. How can we be light and salt if we never have contact with the world? The answer is not seclusion, it's exclusion. In other words, the antidote to worldliness is to have my heart so full of love for God that there's no room for a competing affection. And only then can we be in the world without needing the world's approval. And then we can love the world like God loves the world. And we can do the world some good. Last fall, he probably won't remember this, but I had a lunch with Jason Herman and he was interviewing to become our new senior high youth minister. And I asked him a question I have asked in dozens of such lunches with prospective minister candidates for our church. I said, Jason, what do you believe is the best gift you would bring to this ministry? And typically you get an answer like, well, I'm a good organizer. I have strong people skills. I'm a good administrator. He said, and I'll never forget this. He said, I love God. I really, really love God. Well, I didn't tell him, but he had the job right then. That's who I want to be around my son for the next few years. I think he's doing well in class. I think we all want to do better. And so allow me to share with you one more quick piece of wisdom from a mature Christian who has walked well for many years. Listen to dear Faye just one more time. If you want to love God more, just beg Him to help you to love Him more, to, to love His Word more, to love His people, to love His creation, and to 
help you to show others of his great wonders and his great love. She's right. If you want to love God more, beg him to help you. The attraction of the world is strong. Sometimes all we can pray is, God, I struggle to want to love you because the other things I love are so alluring. So help me want to want to. I'm going to ask you to do that right now. Would you bow your head, please? Just spend a little time doing business with God and ask God to help you love Him more. Name the thing that is God's competition. It might be a good thing in the wrong place. Just ask God to help you love Him more. Oh God, we repent of worldliness. There have been times when we have cheapened our witness by resembling that which is so transient. What we pray is that we would grow in grace. And that we would grow in knowledge. But most of all, that we would grow in love. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand now. We have some elders and ministers that will be back at the chapel to to pray with anyone today that has a burden they need to carry to the Lord. There will be some ministers down front, and if you're ready today to confess Christ, we will baptize you this very hour, just like they did in the Bible, and you can start your walk in the grace of God. What we're going to do now as people make their minds is we're going to recommit, and we're going to encourage each other to love God with all we have.